Welcome, friends, to the Generations Broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you, as well Steve Vaughn, who is a board member for Generations, and also very much involved in speech debate uh, for Colorado and for the country. Yes. Steve, your vision, your desire is to root and ground young students in a distinctively biblical way of looking at things and in an understanding of history and politics. And hopefully the ability to apply a biblical viewpoint to, uh, to, to engage these issues in their future callings. Yes, and I, I do this through uh, coaching my own club. I have uh, private coaching that I've got about 20 students throughout the country. I've been helping out some of the different clubs. But what we look at, and one of the things that I've been getting from the parents uh, as I've been coaching their students is, man, you aren't just teaching them how to speak and debate. You're giving them a worldview, and you're you're mentoring them in 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 the standing firm on the Bible. And and I said, that's right, because I'm not about training people just to be able to speak in debate. I'm I'm raising an army, and I, I want these young people to be ready to speak the truth in love, but to take the fight to the gates of hell, which Jesus said will not prevail against us as we build the church on the fact that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what I'm doing. Steve, there's a classic line, if you don't understand or if you haven't studied the mistakes made in history, you are probably bound uh, to repeat them. Yes. Um, And certainly we want to avoid making those mistakes, but also when the wicked rise, people hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. And, you know, the wise man will see the evil coming and hide himself. And all of these principles tie in such that, you know, you wonder if you lived in Bolshevik revolutionary russia in 1914 whether you would take note and say you know what it's time to get out of dodge you wonder if you were there in germany in 1939 perhaps you were a jew maybe you were you know somebody read the proverbs and had a certain wisdom and understanding how to how to view the nature of man the progress of evil the trajectories of where a nation is going and and to know in 1938, it's time to get out of a Dodge or Berlin, yeah. as the case may be. Yeah. <laughs> Learn yeah, from they, the mistakes of history or you are bound to repeat them. And that's why I am a student of history. It's one reason. Uh, the seedbed of the Bolsheviks and the revolution in Russia. That's what I want to address right now. And again, I've been studying the history of Russia, specifically Russia in the 19th century. And my conclusion, after reading three or four massive books on the history of Russia over the last week or two, I find these to be the seedbed of the Bolshevik Revolution. Number one, the rise of demonic influence and in calling up the dead among the Romanovs, the Tsar and his household, and of course, many others. But the leaders are important, and what the leaders are doing is instructive. And we need to be aware of what is going on when Abraham Lincoln brings seances into the White House friends this matters okay that's number one number two general tyranny with the romanovs and the tsars and and that only existed for a thousand years you know maybe not quite that long but it's the 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 russian experiment with uh with tyranny has not been a pleasant story number three moral anarchy in society and we just treated that recently number four atheism and the universities 
and a total disillusionment with a superstitious, weakened church. That certainly was the case with Joseph Stalin and Lenin as well. So if you read their biographies, you're going to say, yeah, atheism in the university is much more attractive than the superstitious, weakened church. The, the Orthodox church was so broken down, extremely weak. The superstition that displaced real faith for the Romanovs, for example, a wrong view of God, a wrong view of God's sovereignty, a wrong view of Christ, a wrong view of the church, a wrong view of uh, salvation, go on and on and on. You just see that there was an extremely weak Christianity. It wasn't much discipleship in everything Jesus had taught. Uh, Then finally, here's the other aspect to this, the rise of cults. Mm-hmm. really did have an influence on the the Marxist revolutions and the crazy satanic stuff that followed. For some reason, the 1700s and 1800s in both U.S. and Russia involved the rise of eccentric cults. And I'm not sure I can explain why, but Russia and the United States particularly had a problem with the rise of, I'm talking about weird cults, eccentric cults, sometimes end-of-the-world type of cults. 19th century was a horrific time in the United States as well as Russia. Yeah, I'm actually reading a book right now, The Culting of America. It was written by Ron Rhodes back in the mid-90s. And uh, he was saying that this... It, it had been coming to the 90s for quite some time with the whole New Age thing and all of that. He ties it to a weakness of the church, or at least of the of the people who are in the assembly, biblical illiteracy. They don't they don't understand what the Bible says, and therefore, if they're going on their feelings or going on what they think seems reasonable, then they could fall for about anything. So if you can't stand for something, you're going to fall for about anything. So he ties that there. And I think that's where Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses came in. I mean, they're about the same time in the mid to later 1800s, and it's because of the weakness of the church at the time. That's true, and I think that's exactly what's happening with the Orthodox Church in the 18th and 19th centuries. The Kleistes is the seedbed from which Rasputin arose, and of course Rasputin is the demonic-influenced destructor of the social order of the day. For some reason, he had such influence upon the Tsar and his household, especially his wife, and uh, no question this guy was satanically influenced wow rasputin was extremely hypnotic you look at his pictures you ever seen a picture of rasputin (laughs) yeah there's been a number of biographies written recently because there's been more released on more information released upon the crazy man from siberia Uh, rasputin was an extreme hypnotic He, he had a surprising spiritual power about him shocking people just were just blown away he was extremely sexually perverted. He was an extreme drunk. He was extremely full of talk about God. He seemed to have an ability to heal, at least bring about temporary healings, uh, which kept the Tsarina um, enamored and, and under his control for a period of, I'm going to say, about 10 years. Now, again, his roots are the Kleistes. There's some debate as to whether or not he was a card-carrying member of the Kleistes. I don't even know I'm pronouncing these Russian words well, but uh, somebody can correct me if they'd like. <laughs> the Kleistes taught crazy doctrine. They were about ecstatic experiences, dancing with frenzied movements until they were all in a sweat and a lather in which 
point, even crazier things happen. The leaders fashion themselves as as the Christ or the Lord of hosts, and this allowed for many messiahs that came in through the Kleisty sect. They engaged in screaming, sobbing, fervently, savagely, passionately praying. They whirled, they whirled until someone cried out, I feel it, the Holy Spirit, God is with me. And they called it spiritual beer. It was kind of a an ecstatic moment where they were able to sweep themselves into a mindless hypnosis. And at that point, the flames of their candles died out and everything moved into darkness. I'm not going to tell you what happened after that, but they're usually involved in what they called group sinning. Their theology was this, to drive sin out with sin. In other words, the more you sinned, the more you would drive sin out. That That's their theology. And you can imagine, well, actually, don't imagine the sorts of things that followed. <laughs> yeah. Um, they would sin that grace would abound. That that was their theology. That was it, in a nutshell. So, so this was the religious satanic cult that had strong influence upon the country of Russia prior to the revolutions. And for some reason, these psychic spiritual influences worked their way into the highest echelons of Russian government. And uh, some of the, the uppity-ups would participate in these, uh, these ecstatic, crazy, uh, passionate orgies. Well, we'll be back in just a moment to talk about the birth of rock and roll. And you're probably asking, what in the world does rock and roll have to do? <laughs> That's next on Generations. You know, busyness has a way of creeping into our lives. As dads, it can leave us longing for moments of one-on-one time with our sons to simply talk. And those moments can be tough to come by. I get it. That's one of our top goals for our annual summer father-son retreat in the Colorado mountains. To provide quality time for you to connect with your son, can you think of anything more important for your schedule next year? If you are looking for an opportunity to bond, to really bond with your son, then join me, Kevin Swanson, and hundreds of other fathers and sons from across the country next August. But be sure to register soon because we max out the camp every year and we're already filling up. Go to coloradofatherson.com today and choose one of the two weekends available before they are full. Lord willing, I will be there and it will be a great opportunity to meet you and your son. This is your chance to secure the lowest price for this event. So go to coloradofatherson.com and register today. And we're back on Generations. Kevin Swanson with you. Now, I've talked about the Kleistys. I've talked about the ecstatic experiences of a highly charismatic cult. And now I want to talk about rock and roll. The founders of rock and roll, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley. Now, here's the point I've made in several broadcasts. I've done a number of these because I think this is important for where we are today as a culture even as a Christian culture, because we have inherited so much from the rock and roll generation. Have you been to church lately? Well, the founders of rock and roll, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, they could not shake their roots. Now, what were their roots? They had Pentecostal roots, but they also had a certain fear of God. And this is what makes it so interesting. Little Richard is oftentimes seen as the king of rock and roll, the the founder of rock and roll. There were one or two that appeared before he showed up, but not very many. He's the guy who began to take this to a wider, popular audience. But Little Richard was eventually convinced that his popularity and his homosexual lifestyle 
would lead him down the road to hell. Somewhere he'd strayed from the religion of his youth, and little Richard recalled that he liked the fiery Pentecostal services the most, where the preachers spoke in tongues and they did the holy dance. Now, towards the end of his life, little Richard said, I wanted people to forget little Richard as a rock and roller. I was soon to be qualified as an evangelist like Billy Graham. I believe this kind of rock and roll music is demonic. I believe God wants people to turn from rock and roll to the rock of ages. That's kind of a neat <laughs> yeah. kind of sound to it. you know. <laughs> anyway, Richard also said he asked God to save him. The Lord spoke to him saying, Richard, you're singing Tutti Frutti. You're singing Good Golly, Miss Molly. You're singing Long Tall Sally. You're singing The Girl Can't Help It, and she's got it, and all these things. And Richard said, Lord, can I do this and still be saved? And according to the singer, the Lord replied, Richard, no man can serve two masters. Okay. This is a quote, again, Little Richard. People want to go to heaven, but they don't want to have to give up nothing. In order to see Jesus, you got to give up something. Okay. Uh, he related a recent incident where a producer came to him offering millions of dollars for a new television series entitled Little Richard. This would have been shortly before he died. The producer told him if he would allow the series to go forward, he'd be the hottest thing on the planet. And I said, this is Richard, I don't want to be hot in the fire. I don't want to be hot in the flames. I want to do what God wants me to do. I don't want to sing rock and roll no more. I want to be holy like Jesus. Give everything you've got to Jesus and you'll feel so much better. All right, so that's the sort of testimony that <laughs> yeah. you get from little Richard. And again, the reason I come back to this is because I think what you see here is a heritage of something of the fear of God, something of a gospel message that he got. Um, as My understanding is he, he later joined the Seventh-day Adventists, as it turns out. Um, we've also talked about Jerry Lee Lewis, who enrolled in Southwestern Bible Institute in Texas, raised in the Pentecostal church, divorced, what was it? four, five, six, seven times. Something like that. Married his 13-year-old cousin, and you know all of that. But seven years before he died, Jerry Lee Lewis confessed to a reporter for the Guardian News Source, I was always worried whether I was going to heaven or hell. I still am. I worry about it before I go to bed. It's a very serious situation. I mean, you worry when you breathe your last breath. Where are you going to go? So again, my point is this, is that these men had roots. And these roots included a certain fear of God, which, by the way, is extremely rare these days. And that's why I refer to this. But then secondly, they have roots in Pentecostalism. Now, here is a segment that I pulled from the Humanities Journal, a secular source that studies culture and sociological phenomenon. And this is on the roots of rock and roll. Now, listen, a distinctly Pentecostal music and worship style has strongly affected rock and roll. This influence has been both indirect through Pentecostal influence on gospel music and direct via a surprising number of rock artists who grew up in or were exposed early to Pentecostal settings. Among these rock and roll artists are many in the highest echelons of rock performance and songwriting, including Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, B.B. King, James Brown, Tina Turner, Marvin Gaye, Sly Stone, Al Green, and many others. One explanation of Pentecostal influence rests on the parallels between Pentecostalism and rock, both of which feature ecstatic music. Ecstatic music. All right, so 
You say, where in the world is Kevin Swanson going to go on this? <laughs> Talk about the Kleists and the the weird demonic influences upon the destruction of Russia and the rise of the Bolshevik revolutionaries and rock and roll, the rock and roll moral revolution in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, my intention, of course, is not to go after a certain denomination, the Pentecostals, the Charismatics. There are excesses in various denominations that have produced bad fruit. So we, we know that. But the broader question here, Steve, is how do we avoid the excesses? How do we avoid the excesses? Now, so I'd just like to touch on a few principles before we're done. The first of which is this. The sexual revolution in the 1960s probably would not have happened without the rock and roll revolution. You agree with that? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, because I mean that's that's really what rock and roll means. Uh, it it had it had sexual roots just in the name of rock and roll. And this introduces the point, friends. We need to be aware of what music is doing to us. What is popular music and popular art and popular culture doing to me? And I'm not sure the average person steps back and and asks the question: What is all this social media doing to me? What has happened to me because of my use of social media and, you know, my 14 hours on the Internet every day for the last three years? How has that influenced me? And what are these lyrics really saying? Tutti frutti o Rudy, you know, what, what, what is this, these words? What is jailhouse rock? You know, if you can't find a partner, use a wooden chair. Come on and rock. What, what is this? What are we singing? What does this mean? I don't, I don't even think people are asking the question what it means, and yet that's important. It's an important question to ask, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And uh, sometimes there, it just means what it means, but sometimes you have to look deeper and figure out who is this person, what are they talking about, why are they writing these lyrics, what did it mean to them, because that's really what you need to look at. Why did they write this? What did it mean to them? And what state of mind were they in at the time? That, you're going to find some interesting answers. The other point that Ken Meyer brings out in his book, All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes, a book on popular culture, which I would recommend to you. you know, the two books out there on popular culture, one of them is written by a guy named Kevin Swanson, and it's called The Tattooed Jesus. <laughs> the other is Ken Meyer's book, All of God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes. And one of the points that Ken Myers makes in the book, and I think it's very good, he says, when you look at music, you need to consider the broader cultural context. You know, where is this sung? What is the context of this? What are, who are these people singing it? What is their lifestyle? And, and those sorts of questions are important to ask. You know, another Saturday night and I ain't got nobody. A guy living all by himself, looking for a one-night stand. I don't think people were talking about that or thinking about it. When Sam Cooke sang that song in 1962 or 1963, whenever it was, he was raised in a in a Christian household. Again, another good example of somebody raised in a in a church. His father a pastor. He's he's getting started his career by singing gospel music. Same kind of deal. And uh, but you know the trajectory, of course, was terrible. And I believe he was either murdered or committed suicide. Can't remember which. But uh, but another example of a cultural situation, a pop star, a, a, a situation in which music is presented, where there are no parents involved, the community is not there. It's all 16-year-olds uh, dancing themselves into a lather. I wonder how that's going to turn out. <laughs> 
You know what I'm saying, Steve? I, yeah. We have to be conscious of the entire cultural context. A good point made by Ken Meyer in his book, All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes. Okay, here's a second principle I want to throw out under the table, and that is unfettered romanticism and wildly ecstatic expressions have at points linked to the demonic. And now I speak of, you know, ecstatic experiences, crazy dancing, hypnosis, drugs and alcohol. The devil is a reality and we must be well armed. And the things that open one's mind up to attacks to the devil are those things that relax self-control of the mind. Also, I'd add pride, sexual sin, pornography, bitterness, lack of forgiveness. All of these things can open one up to attacks of the devil. And we need to be aware of that. But certainly rock and roll was a means, unfettered romanticism, uh, crazy primal screams that, that don't sound like a, a nice tune with a melody to it, more of a, 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 a sequences of primal screams, you know, and, and, and a, a repetition of music. We got to be cautious with these sorts of things. Now, what I would recommend, of course, is a rooting and grounding in scripture, a clarity of mind. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but love, power, and a sound mind. That means a mind that is under control. That, that word sound mind means a, a mind that is self-controlled, a mind that's centered on God's truth and fortified by God's truth. And one way I put it is we have to be cautious. We don't allow our mind to divert to this or that. We must have control over the inputs, uh, similar to, you know, you can't leave your doors open to all of the juvenile delinquents in town to come and party in your house and, and turn the thing into a wreck so that, you know, kids are coming in and out at will. No, no, you have control over who comes in and out of your house. And so we need to have control over what comes in and out of our minds. Uh, control of our minds, really critical. And I bring out 1 Corinthians 14, uh, Paul's instructions to the worship services in Corinth. And it seems to me there was a little bit of out of controlness going on at the Corinthian church. But what does he say? He says, what is it then? I will pray with the spirit. I will pray with the understanding or the mind. Also, I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the understanding. Also, one of the things that we've done in our church, and this is something we've added over a, a period of a number of years, we usually have about a 30-second introduction to every hymn and psalm in our church today so that, you know, we're not using the music to disconnect our mind from what we're singing, but so that we, you know, we know what we're singing ahead of time. So we're not just kind of mouthing the words and feeling the the sentiment of the song, but but our mind is first focused on what we're singing, and then uh, our heart joins in with the, the mind as we praise God. Uh, so be careful with repetition, forms of hypnosis, any form of music that disconnects you from the words or God's truth. And then let me also say this, that, you know, you're, you're choosing a church. You're saying, I'd, I'd rather not go to a cultic church. Uh, I'd rather go to a biblical church. And I would say, first and foremost, be sure that it's a church that's rooted and grounded in the word of God and rooted and grounded in the historical doctrines of the church that have held true for 2,000 years. And, and here's what you should find. Here's the focal point for the church. It's, no, the focal point is not going to be music ministries, dancing, speaking in tongues, being slain in the Spirit, laughing revivals, etc. The pastoral epistles tell us about the functioning of the church. And, and search as you may, you will not find laughing revivals in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. <laughs> 
It's just not there. You, you actually don't find speaking in tongues. You find that in 1 Corinthians, but there's moderation. And Paul's introducing moderation to that business that was happening in the Corinthian church. But what is the focal point? What are the, what are the things the church should be focused upon? Well, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, not about icons. It's not about seances. It's not about speaking to the dead. It's not about uh, prophecies. It's not about speaking in tongues, ecstatic experiences, the kinds of things that, you know, some guy like Rasputin is going to bring into your church. No, that's not going to be it. What will the biblical church do? Well, four things. Preach and teach the word, 2 Timothy 4.1. Disciple the young men in the word of God, 2 Timothy 2.2. Older women will disciple the younger women, Titus chapter 2, and will be taking care of the widows, 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're not going to be passing them on to welfare and social security. <laughs> Amen. So the question is, your church doing these four things? I'm not saying we don't have some music, but that's not the focal point. Is your church focused in on the things that the church is supposed to do? That's the question. And it's the four things, preaching, teaching the word, discipling the young men, older women teaching the younger women, and taking care of the widows. That's pretty much it. That's what you find in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the pastoral epistles which teach us how we're to behave ourselves in the churches of God. And then finally, let's be careful about obsessing over certain externals, hand-raising music, kneeling, foot-washing, handling snakes. You know, any church that focuses in on these externals, uh, I don't think so. It's the heart that matters most, a heart that loves God, thanks God, sincerely fears God, trusts in God, and there's an increase in all of that happening in the body. That, my friends, is a healthy church. Well, that wraps up this edition of Generations. This is Kevin Swanson and Steve Vaughn inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation. 